Hi, welcome to Litboro, in-depth literature and philosophy analysis on what makes some writers truly exceptional. Today, we'll be taking a meandering journey through Haruki Murakami's works. Hope you all enjoy. I, I write prose, just like I play music. I used to be an owner of a chess club in Tokyo before I became a writer. So music means a lot to me. And uh, sound, and rhythm, and free improvisation. That quote was from Haruki Murakami. Born in Kyoto, Japan, Murakami is a celebrated author and among the most prominent figures writing in the magical realism style of fiction today. Where fantastical elements are found in otherwise mundane settings, and the magical is ancillary rather than the driver of the story, serving to highlight the range of human behavior. Part 1. Elegance and Simplicity Haruki Murakami writes simply, in a way we can all understand. Sophisticated language can be beautiful, however, there's an elegance in accessibility, a kind that can only be found in simple language written well. Often, I skip over the forewords in novels, but within his first work, Hear the Wind Sing, Murakami takes the time to explain that in order to write the book, he had to switch away from Japanese, his native language, to English, forcing himself to write more simply. From the foreword. Needless to say, my ability in English composition didn't amount to much. My vocabulary was severely limited, as was my command of English syntax. I could only write in simple, short sentences. That meant that however complex and numerous the thoughts running around my head might be, I couldn't even attempt to set them down as they came to me. The language had to be simple, my ideas expressed in an easy-to-understand way, the descriptions stripped of all extraneous fat, the form made compact, and everything arranged to fit a container of limited size. Mastery in a craft often precedes the ability to produce simple works that shine like how great teachers must first wholly understand a topic in order to distill its contents and communicate the ideas to students in a digestible way. We see the beauty of simplicity that can only be achieved through disciplined practice everywhere, especially in Murakami's birthplace, Kyoto, Japan. From the tranquil shapes of Shinto Tori gates to the minimalist blocky architecture of both traditional and modern buildings alike, Kyoto is a simple city with a serene aesthetic. Underlying that, it is a city of master artisans with a rich, complex history, serving as the cultural center of Japan and, in the past, Japan's capital. Murakami is one such master, pushing the genre of magical realism. In film, works like Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth show similar styles of magical realism, featuring the old, jittery fawn, both helpful guide and pitiless creature, as well as the pale man, a child-eating monster with removable eyes embedded in the palms of his hands. All under the backdrop of a Francoist Maquis conflict in Spain, 1944. In all cases of magical realism, the fantastic serves as a foil to better emphasize the intricacies of human behavior. Murakami's Kafka on the Shore tells the intertwined stories of Kafka Tamura, a runaway student, and Satoru Nakata, an old man that can speak to cats. The book features a moment where Satoru encounters Johnny Walker, 
a man smartly dressed with a cane, the devilish physical embodiment of a corporate brand who intends to torture and cut the hearts out of live cats. This strange and dark Faustian scene is riddled with ambiguity. Here's my interpretation. The man with the cane, the embodiment of the corporate brand, is a husk made to represent the spirit of Kafka's father, an empty soul that had latched onto a meaningless concept, taking the form of a whiskey company's mascot out of sheer chance. An excerpt from Kafka on the shore. Your heart is like a great river after a long spell of rain full to the banks. All signposts that once stood on the ground are gone, inundated and carried away by that rush of water, and still the rain beats down on the surface of the river. Every time you see a flood like that on the news, you tell yourself, that's it, that's my heart. Before running away from home, I wash my hands and face, trim my nails, swab out my ears, and brush my teeth. I take my time, making sure my whole body's well scrubbed. Being really clean is sometimes the most important thing there is. After Dark, one of Murakami's less popular works, has the narrator describing scenes as if we, the readers, are a camera acting on stage directions, peering into someone else's life. This style of writing gives an omniscient yet creepy perspective onto the scene, as if we were a stalker in the night. A girl, Airy, is locked in a months-long slumber, being visited by a man with no face from inside her television. The man with no face can represent the ubiquitous societal pressures, anguish, and violence that preys on those that block the stressors out of their minds. Sleeping, having the thoughts haunt from the edges of consciousness instead, until it materializes as something much more sinister, physical, and violent. An excerpt from After Dark. Our line of sight chooses an area of concentrated brightness and, focusing there, silently descends to it, a sea of neon colors. They call this place an amusement district. The giant digital screens fastened to the sides of buildings fall silent as midnight approaches, but loudspeakers on storefronts keep pumping out exaggerated hip-hop bass lines. A large game center crammed with young people, wild electronic sounds, a group of college students spilling out from a bar, teenage girls with brilliant bleached hair, healthy legs thrusting out from micro-mini skirts, dark-suited men racing across diagonal crosswalks for the last trains to the suburbs. Even at this hour, the karaoke club pitchmen keep shouting for customers. A flashy black station wagon drifts down the street as if taking stock of the district through its black-tinted windows. The car looks like a deep-sea creature with specialized skin and organs. Two young policemen patrol the street with tense expressions, but no one seems to notice them. The district plays by its own rules at a time like this. The season is late autumn. No wind is blowing, but the air carries a chill. The date is just about to change. We are inside a Denny's. Unremarkable but adequate lighting, expressionless decor and dinnerware. Floor plan designed to the last detail by management engineers innocuous background music at low volume. Staff, meticulously trained to deal with customers by the book. Welcome to Denny's. Everything about the restaurant is anonymous and interchangeable, and almost every seat is filled. 
Murakami writes often with reoccurring imagery spanning across different works, so when you pick up a new book, it feels as if there's a spiritual continuation of some sort. It's like greeting an old friend you haven't seen in a while, and realizing they've changed in some ways, but their obsession with rain, cats, jazz, and strange dreamlike dialogue remain intact. To me, Murakami's books often have tender prose, invoking both nostalgia and a deep sense of loneliness. The first book I've read by Murakami was his major breakthrough work, Norwegian Wood, which propelled him into popular consciousness. Published in 1987, it's one of his few works with no magical elements. Norwegian Wood is a tragic coming-of-age story that deals heavily in descriptions of teenage anxiety, depression, and suicide. I encourage anyone who may find these topics disturbing to take a break from the video now or pause and skip ahead to exactly 20 minutes into this recording. Now, on to dissecting Norwegian Wood. Part 2. Case Study. Understanding Norwegian Wood. We'll begin with a passage from Norwegian Wood. We're not running our lives according to some account book. If you need me, use me. Don't you see? Why do you have to be so rigid? Relax. Let your guard down. You're all tensed up, so you always expect the worst. Relax your body, and the rest of you will lighten up. How can you say that? She asked, in a voice drained of feeling. Naoko's voice alerted me to the possibility that I had said something I shouldn't have. Tell me how you could say such a thing, she said, staring down at the ground beneath her feet. You're not telling me anything I don't know already. Relax your body and the rest of you will lighten up? What's the point of saying that to me? If I relaxed my body now, I'd fall apart. I've always lived like this and it's the only way I know how to go on living. If I relaxed for a second, I'd never find my way back. I'd go to pieces and the pieces would be blown away. Why can't you see that? How can you talk about watching over me if you can't see that? I said nothing in return. If I relaxed for a second, I'd never find my way back. Norwegian Wood is named after a Beatles song of the same name, who the narrator, Toru Watanabe, happens to find a particular affinity with. The novel carries the constant, unstated presence of teenage anxiety, an issue often overlooked in the modern world. We so often tend to blot out the unpleasant parts of our lives. Personally, I had an okay high school experience, many wonderful ups, many devastating downs. But we all know those that have had it terribly, and under the iceberg, there are many others that we don't even notice suffering in silence. In the adult workplace, we find people who are mature and generally have respect for the boundaries of colleagues. Not all workplaces, but many. In middle school and high school, body shaming, sexual pressuring, physical violence, and psychological manipulation is not only tolerated, but rampant and expected to a certain level. Adults in developed nations can quit their jobs, still have some sort of social security, and mostly don't have the threat of physical harm from peers when coming into work. Maybe the theft of an occasional snack from the communal fridge. Though, unfortunately, workplace sexual harassment remains a major issue largely unaddressed. But for children, this exists as well, on top of overt physical violence. Many children face constant threat, 
this lack of control to prevent bodily harm forced onto them every day. We tend to forget this, often seeing our own childhoods with rose-tinted goggles, even glamorizing our pain in some instances. I just want to say, the life of a kid is difficult. But I digress. Now we're about to get further into the plot of Norwegian Wood, so those that have yet to read the book and want to avoid spoilers should certainly skip ahead to exactly 20 minutes into this recording. If I relaxed for a second, I'd never find my way back. After the suicide of Kazuki, Toru Watanabe's childhood best friend, Toru finds momentary solace together with Naoko, Kazuki's girlfriend. Toru and Naoko, in their shared mourning, become dependent on each other in both grief and romantic involvement, leading towards an unstable guilt as well. In a moment of mutual vulnerability, Toru and Naoko have sex for their first times. Naoko feels as if she'd go to pieces, that she can't relax, and after some time leaves college to get better at a mountain sanatorium. Toru continues his education and meets Midori Kobayashi, a confident and bubbly classmate, a personality very much the opposite of Naoko's. As their friendship develops, Toru finds himself conflicted between the shy and reserved Naoko spending her days getting better in the mountains, and Midori, quirky and full of excitement. The book is a coming-of-age tale consisting mostly of tedious events and slice-of-life scenes. The beauty of the story isn't in the big events, but the whispers in between. The moments of flirting and silliness under the backdrop of young sexual tension. The promises made only for it to fizzle out by attrition. Scenes like when Toru releases a firefly from his dormitory, or where he aimlessly wanders through Tokyo streets in contemplation in the rain. Toru visits the mountain sanatorium, and Naoko's roommate here, Reiko Ishida, explains that Naoko's been seeing progress. There's optimism and a sad kind of soft, renewed joy. In the quiet mountains, the three spend their days sharing stories and traumas from their past. Reiko is an older woman, in her late 30s, who initially seems out of place as a resident here, mature and caring, though also jovial and enjoys teasing with provocative jokes. Reiko and Naoko share clothes, work together, cook, and generally seem to have a deep respect and love for each other. After Toru gets back to the city, he begins exchanging letters with Reiko, both to see what she's been up to and as an intermediary to communicate with Naoko as well. After some time has passed, Toru opens one of his last letters from Reiko. Naoko had committed suicide. The event hits hard. It feels real and the loss is devastating, yet also quiet. There's little explanation here, but there doesn't need to be. Naoko had finally managed to relax for a second. Readers hearken back to the times Toru and Naoko aimlessly wandered around the city for their explanations. They remember all the times of tedious calm, and the readers want to go back to it. Though when they do, they realize it's an illusion. There never has been just calm. The constant presence of hurt and anxiety are present even in the loving, tender moments, especially in those moments. In the discussions Naoko and Toru had 
of accidentally falling into a hidden well, described where Naoko had always been, in the well. Now we step off into uncharted, unverified territory, meaning we'll explore a specific fringe, yet interesting theory on what may have happened. Back at the mountainside sanatorium, long-term resident Reiko revealed to Toru her past on their nightly walks. She was a talented piano player and music teacher. She once had a young pupil, just a 13-year-old girl, who was in equal parts lovely, charming, and deeply manipulative. Reiko recounted that this girl had seduced her over the course of the piano lessons, and Reiko began to fall in love, though she did resist. What led to Reiko's mental breakdown and eventually her admittance to the sanatorium was that the girl started to spread false rumors that Reiko tried to rape her. There is an obvious taboo element here of Reiko falling in love and considering acting on her feelings with a 13-year-old, but this compounded it. The guilt, the taboo nature of it all, the indignance and betrayal of someone she loved, broke Reiko. At least, that's what she claims. Our conspiracy theory begins by questioning Reiko as unreliable, even though she admitted to liking a 13-year-old, a fact not many would willingly share. On my first read-through, I found Reiko one of the strangest characters in this work of oddballs, though in many ways she seems the most mature and charming, charming just like the student she taught. Perhaps Reiko just projected her own nature onto an innocent canvas. But on my first read-through, I didn't get a sense of malice from her at all. It was only on my second read-through, and after listening to what other readers thought of her, that I began questioning Reiko. While we can't verify her story in any way, we can pick up hints, and from how things turn out, we can attempt to infer her nature. First of all, we have her admitting that she had pined over a young girl in the past. Second, we see Reiko sharing clothes with Naoko. And third, all correspondence from Toru to Naoko is brokered via Reiko, and most interactions between the two at the sanatorium was chaperoned by Reiko as well, perhaps in a deliberate attempt to isolate Naoko from the outside world. After Naoko's suicide, Reiko explained that Naoko had left her all her clothes in a suicide note, essentially allowing her to wear Naoko's skin. Reiko then left the sanatorium, meeting up with Toru and has sex with him, in a moment of shared grief, not unlike how Naoko and Toru had sex following Kazuki's suicide. Reiko had donned Naoko's skin, after all. This could be Murakami's whimsical way of letting Naoko be close to Toru once more before passing to the other world. But a realist's interpretation would find Reiko an especially chilling character, given the situation. Regardless, Reiko had no intention of holding on to Toru, and decided to travel off on her own journey, encouraging Toru to find happiness with Midori. We want Toru to be happy. Perhaps he'd be happy with Midori. But could he have chosen that, or was that choice made for him? In pining over Naoko, he hurts Midori. In liking Midori, he hurts perhaps himself, out of guilt. What a terrible thing it is to wound someone you really care for, and to do it so unconsciously. Passages of simple times and tedious slice-of-life scenes give weight to the work, 
it becomes recontextualized when we have a better understanding of the story's momentum. The simplicity builds on top of each other, creating layers of abstraction atop another in meaning and form, to a deafening crescendo. Part 3. Selected Works and Reception Norwegian Wood, Murakami's breakout novel, resonated clearly with young readers in Japan as it engaged in relevant topics of youth mental health, an issue not discussed much in the media of his time. With exception to Norwegian Wood, it seems like the Western world celebrates Murakami more than those in his own country, Japan, as many of his other works seem to have found more popularity elsewhere. In 2010, French-Vietnamese film director Anne Hung Tran adapted Norwegian Wood into a movie, to mixed reviews, with a soundtrack composed by Radiohead guitarist Johnny Greenwood. In 2018, South Korean director Lee Chang-dong released Burning, a film based on the Murakami short story Barn Burning in his collection The Elephant Vanishes, about a woman's sudden disappearance shortly after beginning a relationship with a man who admits that he enjoys burning down barns. There's an unsettling ambiguity here as to why this man feels a need to burn down barns, and whether it's a sick analogy for what he does to women, as it's never revealed whether the woman met with a tragic end or ran away of her own volition. The vague and open-ended nature of Murakami's works make up a large part of his commercial appeal. However, on the other hand, this ambiguity has also been used as a criticism. That by relying on vague, meandering narratives and aimless reflection, Murakami often produces meaningless stories, stories that lack a central vision. In my opinion, not every story should have a traditional three-part structure, a call to action, and an overarching goal. Some plot lines are easier to describe than others. Here's an example of a bite-sized synopsis. Two hobbits embark on a journey to destroy the One Ring, the source of power for the Dark Lord Sauron. That's one type of story. Other stories are necessarily different. In fact, I believe meandering works with no clear direction is a much more honest way of storytelling that better reflects real life, a fresher, more truthful way that fiction can be used to provide insights into the human condition. 2018's Burning found critical acclaim, winning awards at the Cannes Film Festival, Los Angeles Film Critics Association, and the Grand Jury Prize at the Asia-Pacific Screen Awards, among others. It became the first Korean film to make it to the 91st Academy Awards' final nine-film shortlist for Best Foreign Language Film, and, in my opinion, a necessary precursor setting the stage for the first Korean and first foreign language film in general to win the coveted Best Picture Award the following year. At the 92nd Academy Awards, Bong Joon-ho's film Parasite made history by winning Best Picture to the surprise of critics and casual viewers alike, as well as to the chagrin of Donald Trump, the President of the United States at the time, who publicly commented his disapproval, favoring American movies instead. A good portion of Murakami's characters, and even Murakami himself, fits into the romanticized mold of American noir. Imagine the still of a mysterious whiskey drinker tapping off cigarette ash in a smoky bar, smooth jazz playing while a dame missing a finger approaches. That's the image and feeling I get from many of his coolly reserved main characters, 
To build off that, there are instances where it seems inert tropes take the spotlight, where male main characters have this quiet, slick confidence, and female characters either serve as the quirky, manic pixie girl or troubled dame for the man. This, of course, has problematic implications. Some, however, make the argument that his reliance on these tropes span his works written through the 1980s to 2000s across cultures and languages, incurring translator interpretations if read in English as well. Murakami's works heavily feature Western references, ranging from jazz musicians and American fast food brands to baseball players and German intellectuals. In addition, the style of magical realism Murakami employs is popular among Latin American readers and writers, the most notable writer being Gabriel Garcia Marquez. In terms of references, Kafka on the Shore has an obvious one to Franz Kafka. The feelings of anxiety as well as absurdity in the face of a fatalistic world or regime that Kafka's works usually exhibit left a lasting impact on Murakami's style as well. Though his is less existentialist and overtly crushing, more nostalgic and melancholy. Kafka on the Shore, as stated earlier, tells the story of a runaway student and a simple old man. Their intertwined journeys feature murder intrigues, fish falling from the sky, portals to other dimensions, and Oedipus-inspired fates. My second favorite Murakami book, behind Norwegian Wood. Murakami's other important works include 1Q84, which is a wordplay on Orwell's 1984, about parallel worlds with multiple moons that reflect our own, little creatures from a storybook coming to life, and a dangerous cult. 1Q84 came out to mixed reviews, with some calling the thousand-page book his magnum opus, and others experiencing mild to heavy disappointment. I personally struggled to finish it, but the story had its moments particularly the story within the story about the lost town of cats. A Wild Sheep Chase details a man's journey to find a sheep with a star-shaped birthmark, who is the source of power for the boss, a quasi-omnipotent Illuminati stand-in who controls Japan's political landscape from the shadows. Oddly enough, this story makes a lot more sense than it sounds as a synopsis. I thoroughly enjoyed it. The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle is a book about a missing cat, wartime stories, psychics, and mystical wells. It has passages detailing sexual assault, as well as a graphic description of a man being skinned to death. The descriptions of torture and the assailant expertly peeling back grafts of skin, keeping the victim alive and not letting him bleed out. That left a lasting impression, to say the least. Overall, the story can be a bit too long and obtuse for some, I thoroughly enjoyed the detailed flashback retellings of characters' wartime memories from the Kwantung army in Manchukuo, or Manchuria, during World War II. Overall, Murakami is a stylistically distinct and accessible author who uses simple words to create full, impactful moments, not unlike Hemingway in many respects. He focuses on slice-of-life scenes and everyday tedium to varying levels of success. When it's great, it drives home the fact that our lives flourishes in the gaps between, and when it's weak, the passages become a wordy mess on the way to the next plot point. His mastery conveying emotions and complex concepts in an elegant, nostalgic, and tender way is among the highest form of art. There is a magic to the simplicity of Murakami's prose, 
the way it's structured to make you feel nostalgic, even if your home is thousands of miles away from his. His simplicity feels like home. Thank you for making it to the end of my first in-depth analysis. If you like the content I'm making at Litbro and would like to hear more, please give me a follow or look up my other works like my video essay links in my bio. Every follow goes a long way so I can create more literature, philosophy, and media analysis content for all of you. I really appreciate being able to guide you on your literary journey here, and I look forward to more personal moments I can share with you. Thank you.